Welcome to World of Dads, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Oren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph and GP of Flex Capital. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Dan Sroger. Dan is the co-founder and CEO of Rewind AI. He's also a co-founder of Optimizely, and he was the director of analytics at Obama's first presidential campaign. Dan, welcome to World of Dads. Thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. I'm real excited. When you raised money last year, you kind of like blew up the internet. I think the numbers around your fundraise were kind of crazy. I think you mentioned your pitch deck was viewed like 1.7 million times on Twitter and you got over a thousand of preliminary offers to invest. And I think like 170 serious offers, including some of like crazy valuations. Walk me through the decision to fundraise in public. Yeah, it's funny. These kinds of decisions, in hindsight, always look much smarter than they did in the moment. (laughs) Because when we actually decided to do this, it wasn't an obviously good idea. In hindsight, it is. And what we were thinking at the time was we had plenty of runway at the time, about three years of runway. We just raised a seed round from Andreessen Horowitz not too long ago. And we were getting a couple of things happening. One was tons of inbound investors, great investors wanting to meet, wanting to talk. I didn't really want to spend you know half an hour meetings with each of these folks, one-on-one, repeating myself. Simultaneously, we realized that part of our core promise with our product is privacy. It's you can trust us as a company. And I've learned time and time again in my career that transparency breeds trust. Every time I've been more transparent about something, more people trust it. So we thought, why not do this crazy thing of taking the pitch deck that I'm going to have to go talk to all these investors one-on-one and repeat myself and just post it on Twitter. Some of the folks on my team thought this was crazy. It's one of those things that nobody really has done or not very commonly. So no one really knows why we don't do it. And the last factor really was there really wasn't a huge competitive threat in our industry. You know, obviously there's a lot of AI companies, but what we're doing is so unique in that we capture everything you've seen, said, or heard. We make it useful. We let you search it. We integrate with GPT-4. So it lets you do a lot of things that the data is really the moat. And so even if you saw my pitch deck, and many people did, and we didn't redact anything, by the way, it's still up there, it wouldn't really give you the playbook to beat us. And also, like, you were early. Who cares? So someone knows your revenues. It's not going to change yet. We were growing quickly. We grew to, you know, within short order from zero to 707,000 in ARR. And that was what we put out in the deck. And I did this nice little deck trick where we started the company March 2020. We only really started monetizing recently. So I showed the full graph. I was like the first headline slide on Twitter. It was like this flat graph of no revenue. And then, you know, it started charging and took off. So long story short, we put that out there and it achieved all our goals. We got lots of customers saying, whoa, wow, you guys are a real going concern. I'm not worried about you guys going anywhere. We got tons of investors. It sort of fast track those investor conversations. Instead of having to repeat myself that first conversation, we could just jump right into the questions. And that was good for me, good for them, and worked out great. I highly recommend it. Now, you also were kind of a known entity already. You're a repeat founder. Do you think this would work even for a newer founder? Yeah, I think it would. A lot of folks have reached out to me one-on-one after. So there's definitely a lot of latent interest to do it. I think there's a very few people who are like over the activation energy because there is some risk associated with this. Certainly, the stakes are higher when you do it this way. If you go into fundraise and it doesn't work well, you talk to a bunch of investors, okay, maybe there's kind of a little bit of taint on your company that they couldn't raise. Maybe six months later, you can come back. It's not quite as public. And the reality is some companies today are fundable, some aren't. If you're not fundable, you shouldn't go out and raise money. If you're fundable, you should do it as transparently and publicly as you can. There's no reason, purely from a financial perspective, it makes the most sense. You know, If you could go out to a broader market, get lots of bids, got a lot of interested buyers, you may find an investor you never even imagined you'd want to talk to, but they turn out to be great fits for you as your company. So I don't think it's a first-time founder or second-time founder. You do need to start with a question, though, a very honest question. Is my company fundable? 
If so, then why not maximize the chances of success? And the best thing actually, it saved me was a ton of time. We went from that post out on Twitter to a signed term sheet in under a month. By the way, this you have to think back. This was not during the heyday. Tough time to raise money. Yeah. This is a pretty tough time to raise money. So I highly recommend that if you want to save time, get a great set of investors and do it efficiently, do it in public. The pitch you had was, it was really a video. It was a produced, well-produced video. And what I found like when I was raising money is the first 10 pitches I gave were terrible. Practice with a bunch of friends and I did practice with a bunch of colleagues. And then I would actually do like real pitches to VCs and they were like horrible. Like I got like no interest at all. And then they like slowly got better over time. Clearly your first pitch, even like before you even did it was like amazing. You put out a good product right away. How do you give advice to someone? You're already there. The pitch was already great. Let me tell you a secret. And if you're a VC, if you're especially if you're an associate or a low-level person at a VC, don't listen to the next few minutes because I'm going to tell you the secret that I used to get there, which was prior to this pitch, I would meet investors. They would reach out. That is maybe a benefit of being a second founder. I got a lot of, you know, every day, every day, a new VC firm wants to meet. And so what I did was instead of actually saying yes, I would tell, and this was maybe for the last two years prior to this public fundraise, anytime I'd get one of these, I had this canned response. I used a text expander, autocomplete. And basically I told them, hey, we're heads down focused on product. We're not talking to investors right now. But one week a quarter, I do an investor week and I talk to investors. Feel free to book a time. Basically what happens is one week every quarter, I ended up having just 50 to 60, maybe sometimes more. So you were doing pitches. I was doing pitches, but none of these, I knew it wasn't to raise money. And I also set expectations. I'm not, but I also know that anytime you meet with an investor, it really is a pitch. So what I did was, I then used those meetings. And almost all of those were like the junior folks of the VC firm. I'm sorry I used you as stand-up material, the small clubs before you go to Madison Square Garden. I was using <laughs> that as a way to hone the pitch. So I would actually go for each one of those pitches. In a folder on my machine, I have hundreds of versions of my pitch deck. Each time I would pitch, I would give the pitch, and this is the part I didn't want them to hear, because they're not particularly good investors, their questions were always kind of like the dumb questions. And that's where I actually would focus. I would make sure all of the dumb questions got answered sufficiently well that I would stop getting them. Then you only got like the hard questions, the interesting questions. Yeah, that's cool. Exactly. Two years out of McKinsey, if I can convince them and get them to sort of understand the pitch in 15 minutes or less, then I could hone it. So by the time I'd done this, by the time I put it in public, I had already done the small, dingy comedy seller wannabes to hone the pitch. So yeah, I do think practice makes perfect. And this is where I'm sorry to all those associates whose time I probably wasted, but I use them as really the practice where I just say it over and over again. By the time I recorded it, that, by the way, was like the third take. I edited it in half an hour and I posted it. It really wasn't this like well-rehearsed thing at that, or it was rehearsed, but it wasn't something that that final product was the culmination of probably hundreds of pitches before. Guys, just like that comedian who's just like slowly, it's Jerry Seinfeld's, Chris Rock's been honing their material for all these years. Okay. And if you can nail it in the small, dingy Wednesday you know, afternoon comedies clubs, you're going to nail it in Madison Square Garden. That was my approach. And I recommend that also just generally, because when you get into pitch mode, at least this is how my brain works, it's really hard to go from product, customer, interview, you know, hiring people, and then go into like pitch mode. It's just a different way. And you also don't get better. When you do these meetings sporadically with investors, it's very hard to incorporate the feedback loop. So that's why I really like sort of doing back-to-back meetings for one week, once a quarter, really just a way to hone the pitch down to like precision. Another thing about Rewind is it's a consumer app. It's demoable. A lot of people are working on things like they work on some algorithm. It's like harder to put in a video. Or do you think that's not true? Do you think that's a cop-out that could still create like a really good video pitch? I've never been able to build a successful company without a great demo. So I don't know how that's possible. Part of the magic of Optimizely was 
that first 30 seconds is like you come to our homepage, you put in any URL. You don't even have to have the snippet on your website. You put in any URL and you immediately can start moving things around and changing it. I start with that as like the premise of the company. What's that first magical moment that's going to convince an investor, convince an employee, convince a customer? And I just don't know how to build a company that doesn't have at least that hook. Maybe there's a much, much bigger vision beyond that, but you need a hook to get them excited. And just words is often not enough. Showing is often much better than telling. If you're a founder, you're fortunate enough to have more than one term sheet. Let's say they're all in a similar terms range. What's the step to like picking the investor? How do you know this is going to be a great long-term partner? Every step of the conversation, every step of the way, you get to know them a little bit better. And usually during the fundraise process, they're all in their best behavior. So you should know that. They're courting you. They're trying to get to invest. But you should treat every opportunity to sort of push the limits, to try to understand how they think. How's it going to be working with them afterwards? The investor who led the round, I did this. It was NEA, a fantastic investor. They totally blew me away on every dimension. I mean, the very first meeting, you know, first of all, in this process, when I publicly pitched it, I didn't mention this, but the end of the pitch, you have to fill out a form. Like, if you want to meet with me, you have to like drop your ego. I'm not going to kiss your ring and come down Sand Hill Road. You got to fill out a form and say, I want to invest. And here's the valuation I'm willing to invest at. And so NEA, not only did they obviously submit a great valuation, but they actually made this PDF, the 30 pages around why NEA was a great fit for Rewind and why Rewind was a great company. And many of the things that weren't in the pitch, I mean, they really did the homework and that really impressed me. So even before talking to you, they're basically saying like, this is something that's a good, okay. Yeah. And a lot of investors make the mistake of thinking that they have control. That is the biggest mistake they make because the power law suggests that the companies that are going to return a fund for an investor are the ones, the one or two companies that they have to kill to get the meeting with. And so they make this mistake because 99% of their meetings are people who are investor companies dying to meet with them. So they don't get that right. The few companies that really matter, the ones where they're going to actually make their fund or not, they need to go to and do the work ahead of time. They need to make the PDF before that first meeting to show that you're a great fit for them and vice versa. So that's what NEA did in a way that really impressed me. And not only that, but they also have a very long-term orientation. That's something I was looking for explicitly. I want to be doing this company for the next 20, 30, 40 years, or ideally the rest of my life. If the investor I work with at this stage is thinking about a 10-year fund cycle, that's just not aligned. And so I love that often NEA is buying at the IPO. They did that with Cloudflare. So that's another thing that impressed me. And of course, the last thing I'll say is super important is references, references, references. You've got to talk to other founders. If you've got a really interested investor who's you know, leaning in, giving you a term sheet, every one of their founders will talk to you if it's a good investor. You've got to be willing, even if you're a first-time founder, reach out to any company they've ever invested in. And it's a good sign when they're like, sure, I'll hop on a call in 24 hours. That means that investor is good. If they're kind of ghosting you, maybe there's something they don't want to tell you. So definitely references. I have found also a lot of investors and even employees, when you're interviewing employees, they don't even like use the product before the first call. You would think, okay, I'm going to meet with Dan. I should like try out the product, especially if they don't have to like pay for it right away. Try it out, use it a bit, see how good it is, come with some feedback. You'd be shocked how quickly that gets you into the top decile of investors. Hey, I downloaded your thing. Oh, wow. Okay. Like, what did you think? Wow, this onboarding thing. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah, totally. Here's like five pieces of feedback for you. Like, that's amazing. By the way, while we're in giving investors advice mode, which by the way, I love to do because investors love to give founders advice. So I love to go the other way around. The other thing I highly recommend is just show up on time. It drives me nuts that, you know, if you've got a half hour Zoom meeting and investors sometimes show five or 10 minutes late and their excuse is always really lame. Like, oh, sorry, I was just finishing up with another name drop founder. And then they look you up. At least this is the thing I love is that they'll look me up and like, holy shit, I should have showed up on time because they, of course, they didn't do the research ahead of time. 
They didn't even like do it like a day at a time. They're doing it like real time right there. You could tell that, oh, sorry, I showed up and some associate booked the meeting for them. They don't know who this is. They look it up and they look me up on LinkedIn. I'm like, oh shit, I should have showed up. I don't dismiss you out of hand, but like this shows you if this is on your best behavior, are you going to show up on time to the board meeting? Are you going to show up on time when things are going well? I think it's Sequoia that docks you a hundred bucks a minute if you're late. Andreessen Horowitz did it. Andreessen does that. Okay. Andreessen was my largest investor in Optimizely and second largest now in Rewind. And boy, it's when you go to a final partners meeting at Andreessen, it starts on time and now it's huge. I mean, it's 50 people. There are 50 people there, every single person on time. Ben and Mark is there, all of the general partners. You compare that to like an eight-person general partner meeting with somebody else, night and day difference. It just It's like a subtle thing that shows, I think, the quote that Ben Horowitz said, he wrote about this, why punctuality is so important to the culture. I'm going to probably butcher this saying, but it's something to the effect of investors and founders are both breakfast, but the investors lay the eggs and the founders are the bacon. They're involved, but we're not going anywhere. <laughs> they recognize their role as an investor. Yeah, I like it. It also just shows respect. Some people are just the type of person who can't be on time to anything. And some of those people are like the smartest, most interesting, valuable people. So not everyone is the type of person who can show up on time to something. You have to decide what you want in a given person. It's not a deal breaker, but it's definitely, it's one of those things that and then at the end, to answer your question, the end of all that, I sum up all of these sort of like instances of data I have an investor. And I ask myself, with a full consideration of evidence of all the data points, are they the right fit for me long-term? And that's where I think investors make a lot of mistakes. They optimize for the short-term. They optimize for the ego. What's going to look good on a TechCrunch post? The valuation, the brand of the investor. They don't think about, oh my gosh, three years from now, when things aren't going as well as they're going today, who's going to be there to support me? Forget three years, 10 years, when it really matters. Maybe when you're going IPO. and There's all these situations where you think, oh, I'm not going to care about that. But if things go well, you're going to really care about that. Now, part of a good presentation is a good story. And one of the things I like about you, Dan, is that you're a good storyteller, which is a unique skill that's maybe somewhat related to being an entrepreneur, but not exactly. How do you tell a good story in a presentation? Is it like a movie where there has to be conflict and that type of thing? Or I have a couple of things to say on this. One is this is another reason why talking to sort of associates at venture capital firms who don't really know who you are and don't really pay attention are good. These are people who have like ADD. But if you can hook them, this is a good example. It's the same thing as your comedian going to a 10-person crowd. If you lose them quickly, you're not going to actually you know, get the laughs. And so to me, practice is a big part of it. Vulnerability, authenticity, the best marketing is just the truth. What is the truth behind why you're doing what you're doing? Why are you so passionate about it? That's a mistake often founders make. They make the mistake of thinking, I should figure out what the investor wants. I should say the thing I think they want. But the thing is, if you do that, you're just going to be playing venture capital bingo. You're going to be saying the same buzzwords that they've heard from else. Say the truth, the authentic reason why you are the right person to do this company. And even more importantly, if you don't have that, then are you doing the right company? Like if you can't tell a really compelling story for why you are the right person for this company, then how are you possibly going to hire the world's best software engineer? How are you possibly going to get them to stick through the tough times? And so that's another thing I'd say. It starts with founder market fit. Then the story emerges naturally because it's the truth, not the other way around. The enthusiasm is contagious. So if like you're actually like, oh my God, this is amazing. I could see how that like can pull other people, whether it's an investor or employee or customer, right? It pulls them into the story rather than just, well, I did this Gantt chart analysis of this, like the landscape McKinsey world. It's not inspiring to get people excited. And there's different kinds of companies. I think I'm attracted to the hard companies. I'm attracted to making a category, not winning slightly better. I don't want to be a 10% better tax audit software. 
I couldn't do that for a day, but I could do something really hard that's audacious, creating a new category, a whole new field. That's something I'm really motivated by. So that's also part of just my nature is like what motivates me is also what tends to be a good story. I'm super interested in like wearables. And obviously that's part of where Rewind is going to. You've announced this AI wearable that can listen to your conversations and transcribe them. But before we get to that, a lot of these wearables are screenless. A lot of them are just tracking your body temperature, whatever it might be. What do you have to do to get like the screenless device to work? There's no thing on that. I'll answer this in kind of more of a philosophical approach, and then I'll get to the sort of tangible question of the screen. So philosophically, I think one of the most pernicious mistakes engineers make, and especially engineers in Silicon Valley who may have come from Google or Apple, is they fall in love with the sophistication of a technology instead of falling in love with the problem. I truly believe the best products come from obsessing 80% of your time over the problem and then 20% over the solution or the technology, not the other way around. Great examples of failed companies that have done this the wrong way. Google Glass. Google Glass came out. It started with, wouldn't it be cool if? Any idea that starts with, wouldn't it be cool if, dot, 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 usually fails. Not all of them. Some of them turn out great, but usually they fail. That seems like great to me. Like, why is that so bad? Wouldn't it be cool if every time I saw someone, I'd know their name or something like that. That's wouldn't it be cool if problem statement. That's fine. But wouldn't it be cool if large language models could do this? It's going for the technology. Okay. Yeah. And what happens is you become, and especially if you're an engineer, and I was a software engineer, I understand this mistake. I make this, I still make this mistake. When you are a software engineer, you've got a hammer. And every time you see a thing, it becomes a nail. And so like, if you are, for example, the creator of Rabbit, and you're thinking about how do I do AI? Oh, I'm a hardware guy. I've got a hardware hammer. I see an AI nail. So let's hammer it. And so it's not about how do I solve the problem the best way. It's about how do I use my skills and the technology I know how to build and hopefully figure out a problem along the way. Humane is a perfect example of this. I think they started with great intention. They started with this idea of we're all addicted to our screens. That's a bad thing for society. And then it was actually guilt. Some of the key folks at Humane were the creators of the iPhone. And then so they have the guilt of what have we done for society? And that's actually a really strong motivator. That's a chip on your shoulder. But what happened was while they were working on it, this whole AI thing came along and they're like, oh, that's a cool idea. Maybe we should do AI. And so they took this great idea, this core idea, which is about a screenless, a device in the world that doesn't require you to be addicted and sort of fighting this dopamine hit you get every time you pull out your phone. And they sort of perverted it to be, let's be the hot thing that's right now. And I understand all the reasons why they did that, but it wasn't from first principles, let's obsess over a problem. So anyway, that's the philosophy. Let me apply it to how we're thinking about it. So we are deeply obsessed with a problem. Our problem is that we are limited by our biology and we don't even know it. Our memory sucks. 90% of memories are forgotten after a week. Your memory peaked when you were 20 years old and then every year got worse thereafter. And you don't even realize it. It's one of these things. You're like, who are you again? I don't even, yeah. <laughs> That's the most crazy thing is people don't realize it. Not only that, but you're bombarded with information. Typically, people check their phone 100 times a day and they're just overwhelmed with notifications. So we're building an AI that can think like you and act like you. That's the core of what we're building. And that's to solve that problem. Give you perfect memory, give you back an hour of your day. I have three young kids. I want to be at home at dinner every day at five o'clock. If I have a tool and technology that can save me even minutes, that's a bathroom break I can go take. Those are the kinds of things that we're building. And so with that problem in mind, we don't need a screen to solve that on a wearable. If you simply had a wearable that helped you capture every conversation, everything you said, everything you've heard, it was smart and it actually was proactive. It told you things like it knows who you're about to meet because it's integrated with your calendar and it sends you a push notification of the people you're meeting with. That's all it takes. You don't need to replace the screen just because the screen is the thing you have in your pocket. In some ways, because you already have it, you don't need to replace it. So anyway, I can go long and on about this, but that's sort of the philosophy. And that's, by the way, our device is going to be way cheaper than everything else. We're not trying to do all the bells and whistles where you don't have a laser 
We do amazing, the world's best microphone, world's best battery life, and something you love wearing, and that's it. Nothing else. No bells and whistles, no cameras, no screens, no input devices. That's it. There's a lot of wearables around your health. There's the sleep ring or whatever. There's the glucose thing. A lot of them are like fitness related. There's so many things that people are starting to wear nowadays. And a lot of them are like point solution. The glucose one's kind of a very point solution, which maybe does that one thing super well. Where do you think we're going with all these things? The fact that that exists and does well, I think says something interesting about the market, which is that people want to be better. They have this innate desire to be better. They want to be healthier. They want to live longer. They want to be smarter. They want to look good in front of their colleagues. Those kinds of tools are the kinds of tools I think motivate. If that market pull is there, it's the person who's going to wear the glucose monitor is also going to be the one who wears the pendant. They have a desire. They have drive. They have ambition. They have agency. That's not everyone. You know, I know folks in my life who don't. They're happy to play video games all day. But there's others who really want to just really be better. And for that person, I do think the likely way that they'll start is like best of breed solutions. Point solutions that are just exceptionally good. The barrier to even just wearing something or remembering to wear it or remembering to charge it is pretty high. You got to be really good. And it has to be a problem you care about. That's where I think it's very hard. Sure, if one device can do it all, amazing, good for them. It's just so hard to do one thing really well, let alone two or three. I think maybe eventually there will be a device that can do a lot of these things well. But our focus right now is, you know, the way we analogize it is, you know, the, the glucose monitor is about your health, your aura ring is about sleep. We're really about your mind. Our product is a wearable to help you to do what your mind could do if it had perfect memory, to be able to actually give you that insurance. You don't have to take notes anymore. Notes, if you think about it, is like this crazy thing we do, writing down, taking notes. That's the best way we have today to remember. And so that's the substitutes. We're trying to replace that and give you perfect memory so that you can get more time in your day to focus on things you're passionate about. Maybe things in work, maybe your family. Definitely not drafting an email that an AI can do for you. A smartwatch like your Apple Watch has been a very successful device. But you know what the number one app I use on my Apple Watch is? What? The time. The yeah, time is yeah. to me the most valuable thing. That's the, what I use it the most for. I'm like, oh, actually, you know, it's like this thing we've had for centuries I'm actually using. Which, by the way, reminds me, like one saying that I've learned the second time as a founder, I should have known the first time, is this saying, I think HP popularized it and it was around for long before that. It's the saying that the main thing is that the main thing should stay the main thing. And this goes to hardware, it goes to solving the right problem, it goes to your watch should be really great at giving you the time. I think oftentimes <laughs> founders and technologists can get obsessed with how cool if, and that's where I mean, where I met with like, how cool if it could do all these things. You could do all of these things and not a single person who sees it understands what it's for. And so that's the thing I've seen firsthand when I was at Google. And now certainly the only thing I've ever done that have been successful has been nailing a single problem really, really well and being 10x better than the alternative. I could see why, first of all, it's like more exciting because there's these shiny objects because getting 10 times better somewhere, it takes you 1x time to get to the 80% solution. And then it takes you 10x time to get to the 90% solution. And then it takes you like 1,000x to get to the 99% solution. So it's not that fun to go to these 0.1% increments, but that is actually what really gets you there in the end. Absolutely. By the way, do you do that really requires you to be somewhat in public. You can't do that in an ivory tower. You need that feedback loop of users, early adopters. Again, this is where I see companies like Google and Apple and like Humane really miss the mark. It worked back in like the 70s and now they've sort of cargo culted from this big bang launch, brilliant technologists in this ivory tower. And how lucky are you that we've got this silver platter of a device we know you love? Whereas if instead they came up with a version that was a 10th the scope earlier and iterated with users, they would really understand the problem, by the way, much better. 
It's not people that are consciously making the mistake. They just don't know what they don't know. They don't realize the problems that they need to be solving. And so they just said, as a hammer of a technologist finding nails, they just keep adding new things and new devices, you know, new scope that doesn't solve a problem. It's technology in search of a problem. In some ways, Magic Leap was some of the most brilliant technology that raised billions of dollars. They actually never released anything that got in anyone's hands. Absolutely. Maybe where magic is the problem. General Magic had the same problem. This was like all the early Macintosh guys, I think. It was a spinoff and it never launched. And actually, I think Tony Fidel in his book talks about this. Like he worked there. He saw that. I think he was an intern really early on. And he's like obviously one of the first folks to actually be successful in a non-Apple hardware company in building Nest. And like I think he saw the pain of what happens when you have a bunch of technologists with too much funding, frankly, who go off and they just ask themselves, wouldn't it be cool if? And they never launched. That's the craziest thing. General Magic was great for society. It actually ended up really moving the technology quite a bit. It just wasn't good for General Magic. Their shareholders didn't do as well, but it ended up being like great for all of us. So many other companies got spawned at it. They had these amazing people who ended up going to do other stuff. And so in some ways like, okay, like great. It's whatever they raised, a couple hundred million dollars. Like it was probably like a really good use of money for society. They just didn't get their financial return from it. Xerox Park is probably the same. Xerox Park. Xerox Park is the best example. Money, never got any commercial products, but spun off basically every major innovation in computing. That was really good for society. It was better for society than many successful financial companies were. Now, speaking of society, we're almost certainly moving to a world where way more stuff is going to get recorded, whether it's our video, our screens, our audios, our interactions with other people, et cetera. And obviously, there's some really good things about that. You can remember stuff and you can go back. And there's also some more scary things I'm sure you've thought about. Where do you think like it nets out in the end? How do you think we're going to like live in that world? Boy, I think about this a lot. I mean, I ultimately, especially with wearables, I think a lot about what's the value to the person wearing it? What's the value to people around them? And then what's the value to society writ large? I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I felt like we're only solving the problem for one of those three constituents. So a couple of things I'll say. One is, in general, recording and capturing and storing and sort of remembering what was said is a good thing for society. Often it can be used as a way to protect yourself, too. A lot of people today in society get gaslit. They're victims of politics. They're victims of one thing being said one time against narcissists. So there's a general utility for the bad guys out there. Often, some people will criticize recording as an invasion of privacy. And sometimes it's usually the bad guys who are the ones that have the biggest complaints there who are like, oh my gosh, what happens if my locker room talk gets recorded and shared? Eventually, nobody will care. And the reason why is not because of what we're doing, but because voice cloning is so good today, it's indistinguishable from what you said. The fact that today you could get canceled for you know some hot mic moment before a live interview is going to be completely irrelevant because every single thing that you heard, everything that comes through a microphone or through speakers, that sounds like a person could be entirely AI generated. And when that becomes well known and well done, and a lot of people get attempted to be canceled, but it turns out to be fakes, I think people's entire argument against, of course, there'll always be people clinging to the past, but anyone who's like rational and thinking about, okay, is there really a risk for me here? Their argument kind of washes away because anything they're afraid that might get recorded, that's going to get put out in public, that's going to get them canceled, could easily be said, oh, that was just an AI generated recording. So I think that's where we're heading. Well, it's not just canceled, it's just maybe. You say something unflattering about someone you love, your brother or something like that, when he wasn't in the room. We all have done that before. We said something unflattering about a friend. We don't want to really hurt their feelings. We should, we've never maybe said that to their face, but just in a moment of weakness, we said something to somebody. We're humans. We like to gossip. 
now they like somehow found that out, they could be sad or they're like, oh, I can't believe Dan said that about me. I mean, you just can imagine all these little things happening, you know, if the truth always comes out, all these like little things in society happening. So there's lots of like little things that could happen too. Not just, okay, someone got canceled for something like huge. I sort of buy that argument, but I also think society would be better if people didn't gossip behind each other's backs and they told people directly to the face. People's behaviors would change. People would be much less likely to lie. They'd be much less likely to gaslight somebody and not because they're oftentimes doing it maliciously because maybe they misremembered it. Our memories are very bad. We're all operating under this assumption that we generally know what we said or we're doing. Perfect example of this is like courtroom testimony. Time and time again, it's so easy to show how you can coerce a witness into saying something that they think is true. They absolutely believe with all their heart. With a polygraph, they'll say it's true, but it actually wasn't true. And so I just generally think that, yes, there are situations like that where norms will have to change. Personally, I don't gossip behind people's back. I assume that something I say to somebody, somebody else will hear. And even if I did say something unflattering, I don't think the person I told it to will tell them. These are all these kind of hypotheticals that I think generally are going to be pretty rare. So the net benefit society greatly outweighs the negatives. Now, the transparency, like in a corporate setting, like obviously there's companies like Bridgewater, which are more transparent. They record almost every meeting. They allow people to rate one another and stuff like that. Have you brought that level of transparency into the company? No, 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 no. The rating thing, I think, is kind of interesting. They have this thing, a dot collector you can download an iPhone app to do. I do like radical transparency, and we do 360 reviews every quarter for everyone on the company. I got reviewed by everyone. I review everyone else. So we do have that within our company every quarter, which is a very good case. It takes like 15 to 20 minutes. I think a lot of founders think, oh, that's performance review stuff. That's all just a bunch of big company stuff. But We've really nailed that. And I think that's built a great cadence of accountability and performance in the company. I'm glad you mentioned the former, how they record every meeting. Because what's interesting is Ray Dalio say the same thing on interviews over and over again. Because people ask them, Ray Dalio, you're a hedge fund. What are you doing? Like you're recording every conversation. Isn't this a huge liability risk? Now, all of a sudden, you have a lawsuit and discovery. And he tells a story of every time that a lawyer, some ambulance chasing lawyer comes to him and says, hey, I've got a wrongful termination lawsuit. They shake him down for money. Ray says, great. I've got every recording of every conversation you've had this employee, happy to send it over, and they drop the lawsuit. The moment (laughs) the lawyer knows that you have this to defend yourself, they know they can't get away with what typically happens, which is a he said, she said kind of situation where ultimately you have to pay a settlement because the damage reputationally of fighting it is worse than the actual. So that is, I think, a huge protection to companies. Hopefully the company's doing the right thing. If they are, then it's an asset, not a liability to record your meetings. And do you guys record your meetings? Yeah, every meeting. So if you have like a one-on-one with someone, you're like record, and then like other people can access that in the company? No, not the one-on-ones. No, no, no. The team meetings, yes. But the one-on-ones we record, we, it's sourced locally. So we have recording of the record of the meeting. Sometimes I talk a little fast. I don't know if you notice. So sometimes my teammates say, I like to record and go back and say, what did Dan really mean? What did he say? <laughs> so yeah, we definitely do that. Where else do you think like society goes? It doesn't have to be wearables. You may have a little device at home. You have cameras everywhere. You have all these types of things. More and more of our life is already being recorded. Some people are worried about like putting Alexa in their kitchen or something because it might start recording what they say or all these other types of things. Where do you think we end up? I think where we end up is a society that is massively more productive, massively more present. They're not distracted. Technology augments their natural limitations. It doesn't compete with their attention. It helps them live a better life. Here's my prediction. I, I know this with 100% certainty. 10 years, 20 years, 50 years from now, people will look back at today and just be shocked at how we could live our lives the way we live it today. You mean you lived your entire life and you forgot 90% of what happens after a week? <laughs> That's what you did? You thought that was a good idea? 
What happens if your kid says something and you want to remember it later and you forget? You're just going <laughs> to accept that? You're going to have a meeting and you wait, wait a minute. You guys, hold on. Grandpa, you're telling me that in 2024, people chopped down trees, turned them into rectangles called paper, took sticks with ink at the end of it, and wrote things down to try to remember something? Why didn't they just record the meeting? That will be so shocking to them in the way that today, maybe the future seems shocking to us. I'm absolutely (laughs) convinced that today people will be living far worse lives than our descendants will. I love the optimism. A few personal questions. You have three young children. I saw you tweet recently how tough it is to run a startup while parenting. What's some of your advice for like parent founders? Boy, I have a long list. I should probably just put out a bunch of tweets here. First of all, it goes back to what I said earlier. The main thing is that the main thing should say the main thing. So that's true both of family and of work. So when I'm in family mode, I am not distracted. I'm not on my phone. I'm thinking about work. I can't stop that. I'm background processing. But what I've learned is a skill, and I hope my kids don't watch this years from now and be like, Daddy, is that what you're doing? I can read with perfect clarity, with voices, a kid's book to my kids at bedtime, and at the exact same time, be thinking about a product trade-off or a technology. <laughs> the human brain is amazing. I definitely cannot do that. I've read these books like a million times. That's something I do do. And I'm sorry, Luke, if you watch this later, I am doing it. <laughs> the thing that I also think is important from work perspective is that the main thing stays the main thing. Because I look back at my days at Optimizely, I was younger, I didn't have kids, I was working my ass off, the company was in my apartment. I made up for lack of prioritization with just sheer hours. And you're playing ping pong or... Exactly. But the thing is, you probably know this as well, is like if you look back at the times as a founder, and you look and say, what actually mattered? What actually ultimately changed the trajectory of the company? It's just a handful of things. The thousands of things you did and that I did back then, most of it didn't matter. And so if you have this lens of, okay, I have to figure out what actually matters. What is the main thing that if I focus my time and energy on today, I'm willing to let other balls drop because they're ultimately probably not going to matter. That mindset, I think, is very important because if you don't, you're going to feel guilty. You're going to be like, oh, I didn't get back to that candidate fast enough. Oh, there's this hot take on Twitter I could have posted. Like, there's always something you can do as a founder. There's a, you're never done. And so having that constraint of like, I'm just going to focus on the main thing. I'm going to be ruthless with my time. I'm going to be at home for dinner at 5 p.m. every day. I'm going to put my kids down. I'm going to read them a story. Having those constraints is really helpful. Another way to put it is, if I took me today, the CEO I am today, that is ruthlessly prioritizing my time and put myself in Optimizely, Dan, my, when I, 10 years ago when I was running my last company, I would be so much better. You don't realize how much better you can be when you have this constraint of these little human beings that you need to keep alive. There is a constraint on number of hours. That is a really important thing for founders and not just for founders, anyone who's trying to do something important. If you had like a two by two matrix of like plenty of hours, not as many hours, ruthlessly prioritize, not ruthlessly prioritize. If you don't ruthlessly prioritize, you might succeed with plenty of hours, but you certainly aren't going to succeed if you don't have a lot of time and you don't ruthlessly prioritize. So if you don't have a ton of hours that you can share, you just throw at the problem. Just imagine that just, you're just buying more EC2 instances. You're just throwing machines at the problem. You have less compute, so you have to come up with a better algorithm, essentially. That's exactly it. you got to come up with better algorithms. And that's what I've learned is algorithms and how I get leveraged through my team, how I set context, how decisive I am. All of these things are algorithms I've learned that are the necessary, but not sufficient, approach as a CEO to be successful. We'll see how it pans out. I hope to write a book on this. Once we're you know, smashing success, I can look back and say, hey, look, I, should, I told you so. The book is still being written. So I feel like I can't quite credibly say you can have it all. You can have three young kids and do a startup, but so far, so good. There are trades on the other side too. You might not be able to go to all the soccer games you want to go to, or you might be able to go to the main school play, but not the side school play. How do you decide there like how to make those trade-offs? It's a question of just blocking the time. And then in that time with my kids, I do the best I can. Like I said, I'm at home for dinner every day at five. 
that's a pretty hard as well. Just like getting home at five is for most of us kind of impossible. You should see how productive between 4.45 and 5 p.m. today at 5 p.m. every day, I am so productive. I have 15 minutes left of the day. I can get so much done. And this just shows you that we as humans don't even realize limitations we're under. Like, You're not logging back on at eight or whatever? Or- I am occasionally. Yeah. Once the kids are down, maybe I'll, but then I like spend time with my wife. But you know, if she goes to bed early, yes, then I'm probably slacking and that kind of thing. So I'm not completely, but the other thing I should say, and I don't mean this as a deterrent to people who have young kids or going to have young kids and want to start a startup, but I also don't really have many hobbies. The things I focus on are family, work, everything else I cut out. Maybe I watch a Warriors game every so often. And that means you're maybe spending less time with friends than you used to. Or- Absolutely. Friends, hobbies, all of that gets cut when you've got young kids. And hopefully one day when I get older, I'll be able to rekindle some of those friendships. I hope my friends forgive me. But when I say this, somebody who looks at it from the outside might think, well, oh, isn't that so sad? But I'm happier than I've ever been in my life. There's something so fulfilling about putting all your energy into your family, putting all your energy into your work, and just getting so much back. I could not be happier than I possibly am. I mean, do I miss out that I couldn't go pay pick up basketball? It'd be nice. And if anything, if I was doing it the whole time, I'd be thinking about the company and about the cool things, ideas, or making a robotic hand with my son. Those are the kinds of things that when you have that joy in your life, it's hard to sacrifice it for other things that you think you should be doing, like hobbies, like skiing and stuff. Okay, interesting. All right, a couple more questions we like to ask folks. What is a conspiracy theory that you believe? One of them was, I used to think higher education was a total ripoff and scam. I thought that was a conspiracy theory. Now it's, I think, mainstream. Now that's very mainstream. Now almost would be the conspiracy going the other way or something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think energy will be free and abundant. Basically, like the cost of energy has been going down, but you think it's going to keep going down. Yeah, it'll ask them to, and then people will maybe do a couple ads here or there or something. Like it'll, both the combination of just much better, this is a common thing you see on Twitter, but the amount of energy we receive every day from the sun could power the entire world from just a day of sun energy. And of course, there's all kinds of nuclear innovations coming out, and there's a lot of incentives to make energy free. So I think that's likely going to be the future. Obviously, if that happens, like we'll see massive technology process. So if, if the cost goes down even by 90%, right? So this isn't the free, but let's say it's 10% of what it is today, then you could use 10 times as much energy for the same price, right? So you could just see like lots of things change. And even better for most of society that doesn't have enough energy. They're limited, they're bottlenecked on sustenance from energy. Their lives and livelihood will go dramatically up. I mean, I think the people like you and me who have plenty of energy, we're going to have marginally better lives. Maybe there's something that we'll be able to do. You know, AI will be able to run all the time in the background. But for folks who really are going from zero to one, that's going to be completely changing the standard of living. So I think that's going to be one major change. I used to ask this interview question of what's an opinion you hold that most people disagree with, which is kind of this conspiracy theory question. It sort of shows, do you think from first principles? Here's one. Can I tell you one? Yeah, let's go this for it. Maybe going to make you lose entire all credibility in me and maybe all of your listeners will stop. But here's a really crazy one, okay? I don't think death is inevitable. I think what makes us us, our mind, is an emergent property of our body. And it's possible to emulate what makes us in a non-biological substrate, likely digitally. Put our mind in the cloud or something like that. Yeah, this is commonly called mind uploading. But I think this idea that death is inevitable is a coping mechanism that we tell ourselves, we tell society to help us cope with the idea. But I think death being inevitable is such a defeatist point of view, that death in and of itself is such a waste of life. <laughs> you know, it's, Life is precious. You spend decades of your life accumulating knowledge and history and context and relationships. And I believe, and this is, I strongly believe this, at some point in our society, the vast majority of deaths will be elective, not accidental, not because of disease. It will be, I'm ready. I'm prepared to die. 
what today is called euthanasia, which is kind of a weird fringe thing that's, by the way, growing quite a bit in places like Canada, that will become the norm. And people might occasionally get run over or something, but like the vast majority of death will be because somebody says, I'm ready, I'm prepared. And that's the other thing I have maybe a very strong point of view on is I don't think people want to live forever. When I say this death thing is not inevitable, people think, oh, isn't this going to be horrible? They're going to have all these oligarchs who live forever. At some point, I've seen people who say they're ready to die. They've lived a good life. I don't think it's at 80. I think maybe it's 150 years old. Maybe it's 200. But at some point, they're like, I did the thing I wanted to do. I achieved my mission, my purpose. I got to see my grandkids grow up. And I'm kind of done. There are people who get there. It's such a joy and beauty to see. And the opposite is so heart-wrenching. Somebody who gets cancer and it just isn't ready. They're clinging for every minute. And I'm not ready to die. I'm one of those people today. I'm not ready to die. I hope if I'm on my deathbed, I will be ready by that point. But I'm not. And so I think it's a noble pursuit to try to prove the world wrong that death is inevitable. I love that. That's awesome. All right, last question we ask all of our guests. What conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? Boy, there's so much of this. I mean, I generally think investors, about 80% of investors are net negative in terms of advice. 10% are neutral and 10% are helpful. And it's sometimes hard to tell the difference. Of the advice or of the people? Of the people at the given time from any given investor. And sometimes the best investors give you bad advice. And here, let me just explain why this happens. Investing is a very hard thing to do. And what happens is your feedback loops are all screwed up. You can be an amazing investor, just happen to bet on the wrong companies who, for whatever reason, fail because it's not in your control. You send the money, you help, but at some point, it's out of your control, it's out of your right. And you just have your first couple of years are bad, and then you get sort of tainted as kind of a bad investor. Those aren't actually as damaging because they usually lose their job. The ones that are the most pernicious, and you should think about this when you choose an investor, they're the ones who got lucky early. They got into a company because they happen to know a person. And the problem is for their brain, oftentimes if they become billionaires, they don't have feedback loops. They end up in this situation where they will give feedback or advice because of the things they saw. And it could have been the things they saw, the company was successful despite them, not because of it. It's so hard to get causality right. So I'm not saying this to be malicious investors. If I were an investor, it's really hard to know what the advice is. God, I have my lived experience. I know what worked for me, but that might not work for a new company and a new founder. Recently, I'm an investor in a company and they asked me for some advice. The company's doing really well. And I'm like, I don't know. You guys are doing so well. My main advice is you're doing great. It's terrible, right? Like sometimes you just don't have that much to add. You're not in the weeds with the company. So you could just be giving advice because you want to be helpful. There's a human need to try to be helpful because you want to help these people along. You like them. You've invested in them. Sometimes you just don't know what to say. <laughs> and that's where the thing is, I think the best investors are willing to say, I don't know. <laughs> Most investors feel when they're being asked, they got to give an answer because that's their role and their responsibility. Totally. <laughs> so you've got a good investor if they're willing to at least admit they have that feedback loop of like, do I know? If I know, then answer. If I don't know, say, I don't know. Don't just start spewing out things data points. I do think when it comes to this topic of advice, because some of your audience may be interested in this, the kind of advice that I think generally is good advice is the meta advice. It's not the tactical advice. The very first question I got from an amazing investor at my first company, the very first question when I met him was Peter Fenton. He asked me, what's going to make it so that you love to work here in 10 years? That's the very first question. Well, that's a great question. And at the time, I had no context for why he's asking me this. Now, in hindsight, 10 years later, when I was kind of hating my job, I was resentful, I was trapped, that was such a powerful piece of advice. And I look back at the times he was helping me most was when he was pushing me to do the things I was loving, the things that was giving me energy. At the time, I felt selfish doing that because the company needs me to go like solve these problems. But if you as a founder, back to a point you made earlier, if you're not passionate, you're not excited, you're not telling the story with its full gusto, how are you ever going to bring people up the mountaintop, doing something insurmountable, pushing a boulder uphill when you're not in it 100% yourself. So that's the best advice is meta advice, not should I hire this sales VP or not, or what should our comp plan be? It should be the patterns around how you work, what gives you energy, that kind of thing. Now I've completely forgotten your actual question. <laughs> what was the question about? What conventional wisdom or advice is generally bad advice? 
I think a lot of bad advice falls in the category of when interests diverge between the investor and the founder. And a good example might be YC, which I love and I did when it was 2010, has a bias toward pushing founders to do easy companies. Sam Altman's very famous for saying hard companies are easier to do, which I totally agree with. But like, if you just look at the distribution of the kind of companies that come out of YC or any kind of accelerator, they all tend to be more B2B than B2C. And they tend to be more safe, conventional. And again, I don't know, I'm in my own little echo sphere in, in Twitter. But I do think I very, very much believe what Sam Altman said, which is like hard companies are much easier to do than easy companies. It's easier to recruit. It's easier to get investment. It's easier to motivate, inspire yourself and others. So maybe that's conventionalism is like, don't just do another B2B SaaS company because you think you can be successful. Here's the thing what I learned at Optimizely. I was very proud of it and glad, but it was a B2B SaaS company solving a specific problem. After a while, once you achieve that, then what? What's your purpose? What's your mission? That's part of what I got dissatisfied at Optimizely. And if it's also not that hard, it gets super competitive. It gets competitive. So three years into Optimizely, we had done it. We mission accomplished. We built the product I wish we had in the Obama campaign to make it easy for anyone to do A-B testing. And... Then I kind of fell out of love with the company. And that's the thing. Here's maybe another meta piece of advice. Most founders, they just want something to succeed. They don't think about what then? What happens after you succeed? What about competition? What about your own motivation? What's your passion? What's your desire? And I certainly was in that camp the first time. That's partly why this company, I really started the other way around. Like, what's the company, the idea, the problem? What am I going to be excited about 20 years from now? Yeah, what am I excited about every day? And sold for that first selfishly, because selflessly, that will make me much better at recruiting, much better at getting investors. And building a great product is if I've got that fire driving me every day. Uh, this has been awesome. Thank you, Dan Soroker, for joining us on World of Das. I follow you at D Soroker on Twitter. I definitely encourage our listeners to engage you there. This has been a ton of fun. Thank you so much. Really pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider reading this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D A A S. You can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of Das is brought to you by SafeGraph. SafeGraph is geospatial data for physical places. Check it out at safegraph.com. And by Flex Capital. Flex Capital invests in data companies like those we talk about at World of Das. Check it out at flexcapital.com.